I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Oh, South Kakalaka! Don't you dare be sour! Clap for your world-famous full-time champs! For 12-pack radio, get excited, y'all. Welcome back, everyone, to 12-pack radio, a sharp college football podcast, and your source for Pac-12 football news, Pac-12 gambling advice, and the home of the Bader College Football Statistical Model. I just got back from my tasting the Willamette Valley. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. We had football on Saturday. It wasn't good football. It was weird football, but it was there. It was there. We had college football this Saturday. We have college football coming up this Saturday and on Labor Day, and we uh, we had Mike Am on the podcast last week, and afterwards we talked about uh, this segment being about uh, going through Beta Rank and deciding and looking over how your team would have fared um, on a neutral field against LSU. <laughs> so I think that's going to be a really fun conversation. It allows us to go into all the teams and where they were and like really where the bar is for the Pac-12 to get to the college football playoff, whether it's this year or next year, likely next year. And I am joined, as always, <laughs> by Mr. Rob Bowerin from Sharp College Football and the Beta Rank Statistical Model. What's going on, Rob? Oh, we got to watch some football. I mean, it was... Uh... The, the route running and the you know the the pass you know the pass game the passing game was not there really for either team but it was it was a football like substance. Scotty Pippen's alum uh, versus the the team with the best cheer in all of sports, which is of course Let's Go P from Austin P. So um, and I heard it I heard it in the background of like oh they weren't even piping in the Let's Go P they let people into the stadium to chant it uh, that that was the most uh, fun I had watching the game I don't know about you Rob. Uh yeah I mean it was. You, like you, you like you felt like you had to watch because it was definitely better than high school football. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to see some of these uh, the the FBS teams open up. Uh, this week. If you're new, uh, you know, thanks again to Mikey Ann for coming on the show. If this is your second time listening, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at 12 pack radio or at sharp college football. And uh, we would be glad to answer your questions and all that stuff. But there's a little bit of news that we got to cover here before we get into really the good stuff. Uh, the biggest piece of news coming out was really the Pac-12 network. So we had not necessarily a surprise, but like, I think the amount of people and the suddenness was certainly a surprise, Rob. Yeah. I, I think the, f- because really the the Pac-12 network uh, and or um, you know the universities themselves are in a position where they could potentially take out loans um, to bridge the gap until you know football is played and they're able to bring in revenue. But uh, the Pac-12 network went and furloughed people. Um, so I mean, a furlough is you know like I mean if you if you get furloughed, you should absolutely go look for another job too. But um, there is the potential, of course, that these people will be able to you know come back and work in the spring. It seemed like there were some firings that had happened, unfortunately, on the social media front and like with the, the network app and a couple of things on that front. So it's something to keep an eye out for um, in regards to where the network goes in the future. But um, no sports on obviously um, makes a lot. I mean, this is has a huge impact on so many different things, including the Pac-12 network. So um, in any case, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. You know, other other bad news in the conference. Uh we have a lot of transfers uh, from a number of programs, and that will likely continue, whether it's a transfer to another program or transfer to the likely NFL draft uh, with what's going on. Um, obviously, uh, Rob, you have the Big 12 playing football, the SEC playing football. Now, how long they'll actually play, <laughs> I think, is another question. Um, but a good example, the Schooler brothers out of the University of Arizona and, and uh, Brennan Schooler, who had initially transferred to Arizona from Oregon. So two programs there ended up transferring to Big 12 schools, Rob. Yeah, you know, Brendan Schooler lands at Texas. Uh, his brother Colin lands at Texas Tech. Uh, Texas Tech, of course, has a pretty big opening at linebacker. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see. You know, after you know the UCLA transfer landed at Baylor, um, Burton. Um, you know, I I don't I think we've hit the point where really that door will close. Like I mean, the, you know, we're too close to the season starting for a lot of people to be transferring out. 
Um, but we've already had one game, you know, that was supposed to be played this week, moved to the end of the season uh, because of, you know, COVID, <laughs> um, you know, impacting uh, one of the teams. So as, as you said, like, we'll see how far we get, uh, you know, in, in, into the season. How, how far the how far are these other conferences make it? Um, you know, I'm, I'm still hopeful for a spring season. So uh, but that might not happen if there's a ton of players that are transferring. So I, I don't know, Rob, what do you think about that? Like the fact that we're starting to see um, that floodgate open. Do you think it will have any impact on whether or not we play in spring? I guess there's so much money at stake. It won't matter in terms of the games actually being played. But what do you think? I don't think it will have too much of an effect. I mean, I do think that there's when you look at it in particular, I think that there are, you should be concerned if you are trying to play in the fall, um, perhaps a little more. You're, you're likely not going to have a vaccine. Um, there are already like Auburn had to suspend practice because two of their position groups were so hard hit um, with infections, you know, that they had to they really had to take a step back because if really, you know, there are, you know, and. and Yes, players are likely going to survive this overwhelmingly, but um, whether they get back to tip-top playing condition in time to really play, you know, in three, four weeks, that's another question. Um, so I, I think that, you know, the, the players opting out, I don't think we've seen so many that it would affect depth, the depth chart to the to that point. But I mean, we've also seen, you know, with transfers and then the opt-outs, like uh, I would also keep an eye on the opt-outs, um, you know, as, as we get closer to the Pac-12 season. Memphis, uh, Gainwell, their star running back, just opted out. He's had four family members pass away from COVID. Um, so it is... Uh, you know, they're like, I would keep an eye, like if you're a Pac-12 fan, I might keep more of an eye on opt-outs as we approach a spring season. Uh, but they're also like, I mean, increasingly the conversations are leaning towards like very, a very brief spring season, you know, six to eight games, uh, really in order to try to preserve a full fall. Uh, next year. Hey, we'll take what we can get as long as it's safe. Um, some more bad news out of the conference. Lute Olson passed away um, this week, uh, the, head, the former head coach of the University of Arizona. What I might do is something separate, just a quick podcast. You can listen to it or you don't have to if you don't want to, but it just had a really profound impact on that campus and community. And if you have a, a favorite Lute Olson moment or if you want to like say something uh, to to the legacy that he had, um, feel free to send it to our, our uh, email account, which is uh, 12packradio12p PAC radio at gmail.com and I'll play it um, like on the episode, which should be kind of cool. So all you have to do is just record any type of like, you know, audio file, send it to me. Um, I'll, I'll put it up in, in a quick little episode um, about him. So um, it'd be kind of nice to do that. You don't have to, if you don't want to, if you don't feel compelled or, or if you have just a moment that you really appreciate like Utah fans, maybe that 98 elite eight game, <laughs> probably uh, be a time to celebrate not only the, your team, but also the team that they beat. Um, so anyway, um, just, just uh, another way of just remembering some, that had a big impact um, in the Pac-12. With that, Rob, with that said, real fast, can you give give the listeners, because I know we have some new ones, like a 30-second explanation of BetaRank um, as we, because we're going to rely heavily on your advanced statistical numbers as we compare the Pac-12 teams to LSU. So BetaRank is a college football advanced statistical model built on drive-level data purchased from the same folks that provide data to the college football playoff committee. Um, I run it through a multi-level hierarchical model, um, models, plural, uh, and then output beta rank. And it's, uh, I, I can say this with some confidence, it is one of the most accurate models out there. Because <laughs> uh, I just went back and compared uh, win percentage. Beta rank does not do... Uh, FCS games. Um, so you like, you know, choose your own adventure on the FCS, but for FBS versus FBS, um, beta rank is one of the most accurate models out there. Uh, and it's, uh, right now we're running off of the projection model. Um, so if you go look at all the 2020 stuff, it's all off of what we would predict off of this season. So that's a little different than the in-season data, which is built off the drive level data. But what we'll be talking about, which is the 2019 level comparisons is built off drive level data from every game. Uh, in college football. Um, and it's, it's got a little bit more of a recency weighting than you would find in some other models. I tend, I mean, there's a lot of things I do a little bit differently than ever a lot of other people. Uh, and hit me up on Twitter. If you have any questions, I also have an explainer on it, uh, on the website at sharpcollegefootball.com. Yeah. And, and check out the site. Like if, if you haven't been to sharp college football, um, 
like Rob's numbers are on everything. Your negative drives, like how good was your defense at, at uh, getting negative drives? How good was your offense at prevent you know not having negative drives? How is your run efficiency? How is your pass like you know th- like literally every single like for every team in the Pac-12, every team in college football at the Division One level. So really fun website, just a tool around with, and you can even compare your team with like 2012 Ohio State. Like there's just a lot of stuff on that site for you to to you know tinker around with as we're in a, a pro prolonged offseason. So with that said, Rob, let's take a look and kind of give people um, an idea of what they can compare. Let, uh, let's start with, let's start at the top, baby. Let's start at the top. Let's go Oregon uh, versus LSU. What did the beta rank uh, model say um, how that game would project on a neutral field? And let's kind of compare some of the units uh, like we would normally do in a regular game if this was the season was happening. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's hop right in. So this will be uh, number one LSU, and and to be clear, LSU is in the in the beta rank era, if you will, <laughs> the best college football team uh, we've ever measured, and the the offense in particular for LSU was the best offense. You know, even even beating out that 2012 Texas A&M offense, which was incredible. The Johnny Manziel, uh, with, right? Where he's just cool. Also. Cliff Kingsbury was the OC on that offense. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, man. Um, but so that like the LSU comes in um, and they absolutely, and I, I want to be clear because I think some, some Oregon fans are going to be like, wait a minute, we had a really good defense. Uh, Georgia had the number two defense in beta rank uh, and LSU put the wood to them. Uh, LSU had the number one defense in beta rank and LSU also put the wood to them. I oh, mean, Clemson. Um, yeah. Clemson had the number one defense. Sorry, Clemson. Yes. So LSU, the number one offense that they would, or number one overall, they would go up against number seven Oregon uh, on and on a neutral field. LSU would be nearly a twenty-one point favorite uh, and would have a ninety-six percent win probability uh, there. And I think that's actually fair. <laughs> so, I mean, the big thing when you look at this is like, I mean, the premier matchup, the fun matchup that you'd actually want to watch. Um, would be that number one LSU offense against that number six Oregon defense. Yeah. And, um, and, and to be fair, again, Oregon fans, nasty defense. Totally. Like, yeah. we, we, we have been giving that defense foot massages for like the entire year. So this is not a disparaging comment about the talent or scheme. Um, but again, like Clemson's talent and scheme couldn't stop LSU. Georgia's talent and, ste- and scheme couldn't <laughs> stop yeah. LSU. So that, yeah, anyway, go, go ahead. So like one of the, the, there's a couple of main, uh, there's, there's basically four core beta rank metrics and all of them control for field position and opponent. Um, so then there, you know, one of them is drive efficiency and drive efficiency is, do you finish put together long drives? Can you, you know, drive the length of the field and put up points LSU number one in that metric, uh, Oregon's number five. That's pretty solid, but compared to how good LSU is there, um, Oregon faces basically a deficit of almost like point. I mean, like LSU, if you grade the, if you grade that Oregon defense on the same metric space, that Oregon defense is only, you know, is going to come up like only 70% of what LSU can put together in, in drive efficiency. But the really big one, I mean, the really big one, and that LSU offense was so explosive. They're number one in explosive drives. Oregon's number 11 in explosive drives. I mean, if they played, you would expect Oregon to give up a lot of big plays against that LSU offense. Um, play efficiency, this is actually the least important of all the the four the core four beta rank metrics, uh, it still matters. Uh, but it's the, you know, what was your yards for play controlling for opponent and field position? LSU's number one in that <laughs> Oregon's number 14. Uh, so that might've hurt them also a little bit that you could put together a decent yards for play against that Oregon defense compared to their other metrics. I mean, 14 is still very good. Uh, negative drives. This is three and outs, uh, turnovers. Uh, LSU did not suffer a lot of three and outs, did not turn the ball over much. They might have had three and outs, but there were touchdowns scored on them. Yeah. They had some one and outs. Um, <laughs> negative drives, they're number one. Uh, Oregon's number six. But what really, I mean, and we really, li- I, I, in particular, I really like this Oregon pass defense coming back for this year with another year of experience under their belt. Uh, you know, LSU is a, for a team that was not an air raid team, they're one of the most dominant passing attacks we've seen. They're number one in beta rank and effective pass. Uh, number 60 in effective rush. They really didn't have to run the ball all that much. Um, 
that's going to like Oregon was number 11 in effective pass last season. They might have struggled a little bit trying to trying to contain LSU last season, uh, in particular with the kind of pressure like because LSU with the way Burrow was able to get through his reads, LSU was able to run, you know, five man pass protections a lot. That's going to really stress out your defense, um, you know, and, and then another one. And I want to get into like LSU is number two in special teams. Uh, Oregon was number 22. That's it. That, that will add up over a game, um, you know, like in, in field position, you know, those kinds of things. LSU would have had a little bit of an advantage there uh, as well on top of it. But um, the side of the ball you that might not have been any fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was going to be my question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, is that and I mean Oregon fans like that you know Wisconsin game you know in the Rose Bowl um, you know Oregon's offense I mean not as much as Wisconsin's offense really struggled and turned the ball over but Oregon's offense really did struggle quite a bit in that game against a pretty good you know Badger defense um, but that the number seventeen Oregon offense against the number three LSU defense that LSU defense was actually a little underrated last season with Dave Aranda um, number where 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 Oregon really struggled. Uh, and all their metrics last season was in drive efficiency. They struggled comparatively to put together long drives and put up points. They were number 33 in drive efficiency. LSU is number three there. So LSU is like Oregon would have really struggled to put together long, efficient drives against that LSU defense. Uh, LSU is in number five in explosive drives. Oregon's number 16 here. This is really their best metric. Um, when they did put up points, they were often best at it and, and putting them up in a hurry on big plays. Um, number 10 in play efficiency for LSU's defense versus number 22 for Oregon's offense. Uh, that that one's a little bit more of a wash. I mean, the uh, what LSU is really good at, too, is negative drives, forcing three and outs, forcing turnovers. Uh, Oregon struggled a little bit here, too. I mean, they weren't great at some of the efficiency metrics. Uh, you know, number 17 in negative drives. But where LSU really got you into a lot of trouble, their offense is so good, you're going to have to throw the ball. LSU is number one in effective pass. So they're <laughs> number one in effective pass, number 13 in effective rush. Uh, I really, I think in particular with LSU's excellent defensive backs led by, you know, uh, freshman All-Americans should have been SEC freshman of the year, Derek Stingley. Like they would have, Oregon's wide receivers would have really struggled uh, in that game, I think, in, in, in getting open. So 21 an effective pass for Oregon, number 40 an effective rush. They don't really get a lot of a benefit there. Uh, you know, and it's not to say, I mean, like Oregon's, I, we really like, we really like the Moorhead hire. We like the direction recruiting is going, you know, they're going to have to, you know, those are the kind of moves and, and the moves that they have made in recruiting that they're going to have to make to try to compete with where some of these schools really are. I mean, where the top of the SEC and, and, and Clemson, you know, really are right now. And you, you take a look, and again, if you're an Oregon fan, like the 21 point spread is kind of jaw dropping. Um, you, Clemson was legit, and Clemson had Trevor Lawrence in that offense, and they lost by 17. So, it, like, I mean, and that Clemson team was so freaking good. Uh, I mean, it just yeah. kind of highlights how. Now, it'd be interesting to see how Oregon would have compared to Clemson. We can do that another day. Um, and maybe we're setting the bar too high because LSE was so freaking like insanely yeah, but, better than everybody but yeah like i mean but, not like, impossible it, it's think of it too though i mean like last year if not for the tua injury alabama was really neck and neck with lsu ohio state was phenomenal most of last year uh and really you know both i, I think we have to give you know brett venables the clemson defensive coordinator some credit he does tend to come up with big game plans for big games when he has time to you know come up you know when he when you give brent venables time to plan you're going to be in trouble um, but the, you know, Ohio state was an excellent, I mean, the, the, where the top of college football teams are right now, um, there's a pretty big distance between even where like the, you could have won a national title, um, you know, maybe being in where the range where Oregon was last season, um, you know, back in like 2015, as far, I mean, as far back as that now, I mean, Nick Saban's. Nick Saban's got one of the top offenses in college football. I mean, you have to you have to be great on both sides of the ball. You can't just be like, oh, you know, we've got a great defense and like our ho hum offense. Like you're you're not going to compete in the playoff like that. Well, speaking of great defenses and ho hum offenses, how about we go to Washington? <laughs> what uh, what what did that team look like, and what would the spread have been uh, if that game was played with Bade Rank on a neutral field? 
Oh man, this would have been so LSU has a night. Like we've started to enter the realm of like 99% win probabilities already. <laughs> um, so this would have been a almost 27 point spread on a neutral field uh, for LSU over Washington. Um, and really the, the struggle that, you know, and it would not have been at any fun to watch at all. Would they be that Washington offense at number 38 against that number three LSU defense? I mean, going through Washington's beta rank numbers on offense last year, they were actually pretty decent at drive efficiency at number 15. They stunk at putting up big plays, number 53 in explosive drives, number 69 in, in play efficiency. I mean, for really everyone that they had coming back on the offensive line for them to struggle the way they did running the football, I think is a little disturbing, uh, you know, for, for how they develop offensive linemen there. Uh, negative drives, number 44. I mean, just too many three and outs for that Washington offense. Number 64, an effective rush. Number 28, an effective pass. I mean, you really, it's tough Gosh, because like what effective rush. Like, I mean, you think of, like, I, I mean, Ahmed was fine. And I think everybody, including Washington fans, were expecting more from him, you know, coming, coming after uh, like the departure of Miles um, Gaskin and all that stuff. But 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 you saw like I saw it and you saw it and, and you just go like man that should be better like that 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 part of the offense if there's one place and I get it Eason had the arm and he was able to like throw a little bit better that was the idea was at least they could stretch the the defenses by by like putting up a threat that way but you, I I came into the season going but at least the rush like the rushing game is going to be fine and it wasn't. I gotta say though like and I I feel this way about Ahmed like he broke a lot of tackles. Um, like he got hit at or behind the line of scrimmage a lot. And I, I actually think Washington has some, you know, things to address on the offensive line. Um, you know, that and it may, it may be tough this season with that, you know, like they, they do have some losses on the offensive line. Um, you know, and I think they still bring their line coach, their offensive line coach back. I don't, I, I sincerely don't think he does a great job. Um, so that was like, I, I was not. I was not, I, I am shocked to see as well as Washington recruits and they do do a good job for the most part across the rest of the staff developing players. Um, you know, the offensive line, I think, is one area that they really, really have to improve on um, for that. But even Washington with, you know, their 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 defense, which doesn't give up a lot of big plays. I mean, LSU would have um found a way to unlock them, right? I mean, Washington was number nine in explosive drives. They run that too high safety to, to try to really keep from giving up big plays. But, you know, LSU is absolutely set up to take a lot underneath. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire would have had a field day um, against some of those Washington inside linebackers, uh, you know, if, if they were matched up on him in coverage, uh, if he was coming out of the backfield. Yeah, I know. Like, 27 sounds rough, but, I mean, just kind of taking a look at the strengths of Washington, which were the defensive line, secondary but in that middle like you mentioned particularly if they're trying to prevent those deep play and like just the burners that they had at lsu to be able to catch the ball and then just bang like you're gone (laughs) so um, i think that would have been really where the majority of the plays were happening then there would have to be a shift in mentality for okay how do you prevent that and all this stuff like i think the, the question for me would be how is um how is washington's like would that rush defense of that front seven really do anything to to put pressure on, on an LSU offense? I mean, like it's just man, they, they just got the ball out so quickly and it almost seemed like it was better sometimes outside of the pocket when they threw the ball. Uh anyway, it was just really interesting to, no, to Burrow, see. Burrow Burrow was terrific in particular under pressure last season. That was the dang trouble with that <laughs> you know, trying to stop that LSU offense was Ella, you know, Burrow uh, you know, and a lot of your offensive line struggles in the passing game sometimes i mean really do come back to the quarterback and whether he's holding the ball or not you know for for that washington defense they graded out of 10 last season that's and really and i want to i want to say this that is excellent considering how little production they brought back from the year before um and that they were able to to you know shape out by the end of the season and finish out as a top 10 defense i i think speaks really well to the coaching on on that defensive staff but you know, number 14, an effective rush, number nine, an effective pass. I mean, those are just, this is that LSU offense that graded out at number one, throwing the football 
it's it's not a, it's not the air raid. I mean, it's not Mike Leach running the same five plays um, with Washington State caliber players. This is <laughs> this is a team that recruits significantly better than Washington, um, you know, and and had <clears throat> and you know had a, you know better play callers and better scheme last season. So it would have been very tough for them to consistently put pressure on Burrow um, and, and slow LSU down. I think, I mean, they would have really, I mean, they're in the range of needing like five or six turnovers. They're in the, the range of needing like that, that fall on your face at Iowa game. Ohio state had a couple years ago that really kept them out of the playoff where they lost, you know, and they had like five turnovers. They would have needed like a game like that to, to hang. With that said, I do think Washington's doing a number of things to keep them not only in the upper echelon of the PAC 12, but possibly, you know, pushing to keep that talent gap um, as as small as possible. I, I do. Th- Washington is recruiting very well. I think the one area that I want to keep a lookout for is: Are they recruiting high caliber players at the inside linebacker spot? Because that was certainly a problem last year. Um, outside of that, they are bringing the big bodies. They have done a really good job recruiting well on the offensive line and in the defensive line, which is really really important if you want to be an elite program. Um, I think they have an elite defense, uh, defensive coach, and and just staff there uh, to keep to to really keep that level high in Seattle. It's the offense that we're we're not sold on yet, and maybe maybe uh, the Donovan hire works out and they're able to really step up how many points they got. But like in order to be elite, if you're a Washington fan, um, and I remember kind of saying this about Utah, but in a different way. Like remember, Utah was if you want Utah to make the jump you have to get away from the, we're going to run the ball and trust our defense because that's fine for nine wins. That's not fine for, we want to, we want to challenge for the Pac-12 title and make a playoff push. And they go out and they hire Andy Ludwig and they started scoring points and they got to the title game at least. Right. So did they get, did they get to the playoffs? They were actually in the picture for a little bit because they were able to change on offense. If you're a Washington fan, you have to, have to, have to have an elite offense and we'll see. Like we'll we'll see if if you get there, but there is there there are some blue chip quarterbacks, there's some blue chip running backs. Like there are, like, I liked the youth of their wide receiving core. I thought they were, like Puka Nakua and like some of the other guys that were on there. Um, I thought really could step forward and and really push the program further. But it's about the scheme and whether or not that scheme is going to be able to put those players in a position uh, to push Washington forward to a uh, you know a contender for the Pac-12 title. Yeah, yeah, I totally. I mean, I I think really with Washington, they they have an opportunity. I think too with the potential with, um, they have a bumper crop of players in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in the Seattle area in particular, and they need to cash in. I mean, Washington fans have been talking about this for a while and circling this year, um, in particular. I think with COVID. Um, you know, then and players potentially staying closer to home, like Washington needs to seal the deal on some of these players and, and bring them home. Uh, the then the question really becomes, I mean, what did, I mean, I, I have a couple, like, can the offensive line be better <laughs> at run blocking than they've been? And then, you know, what does John, John Donovan bring us, you know, and, and, you know, next season. Let's go to Utah, which I think is a really fascinating team. Um, you know, a team that was, that was literally in the Pac-12 title game, a team that Paul Feinbaum famously crapped all over, <laughs> um, but, but got to the point where they were in the mix for being a playoff team. And let's cover them right after this. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Okay, we're back. Utah, Rob. Really good year. Kind of a banner year for the program, you know, outside of the the win over Nick Saban in Alabama. I think probably one of the best seasons ever for a Utah football program, but still not good enough to get over the hump. They got to do a few things, uh, certainly uh, to win the Pac-12, but even more so to compete with a team like LSU. What do the numbers say? Yeah, so they're in a, a 25 and a half point underdog uh, against LSU, and a uh, LSU's got a 99 percent win probability. Again, this would be the Number one team LSU against the number 14 team uh, at the end of the year uh, for Utah. 
Um, and, and Utah's calling card has been their defense. They had a very good defense again last season at number 15 overall in beta rank. But again, going up to number one offense, this would have been uh, a really tough, to, you know, handle for the Utes. Um, their, their, their struggle last season was on drive efficiency, uh, comparatively. So they were at number 26 overall in drive efficiency. Uh, they would have given up some long drives to LSU. And then their their play efficiencies at 29. They they're definitely yards for play would have hurt them uh, with what LSU was able to do. What Utah did well last season, in particular, number 10 in negative drives was was forced three and outs. They came onto the field with a plan, um, you know, and executed pretty well, you know, on the first, you know, to get off the field uh, and, and force some three and outs comparatively. So that worked for them. They're number 17 in effective pass versus 23 in effective rush. Um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, LSU was so good throwing the football that they didn't really have to, you know, they never really found themselves in a position where they had to adjust too much to what the defense was doing. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, Utah, Utah would have struggled, I think, you know, trying to, trying to handle this and some of what Utah, you know, where they bring in extra pressure and find ways to get off the field because, and we've talked about this, you know, before, because they're a green dog team. You know, like they're you're not going to be able to send that extra rusher because that running back for LSU is always going out on a route. Yeah. Well, one of the questions I had, though, so this secondary for Utah was so good that that was that I thought that was the strength of the team. Um, and so, like, if we were looking at this game and comparing it, let's say Utah actually played LSU last, you know, last season. The, the thing that I would have zeroed in on was, OK, LSU's excellent at passing. Totally get that. Right. Like, um but Utah has, has a pretty solid pass defense, um, and LSU doesn't run the ball a ton. And if there was one way where you can actually, which was a sneaky, like, weird thing, but, like, the one thing you could do to really attack Utah was actually to run the ball. Like you mentioned, they were, like, top 25 in rush defense, but they weren't, like, elite rush defense. Um, so I think that, like, it was strength on strength. Now, LSU's strength was high and above the strength of Utah, but, I mean, that at least possibly keeps them in the game. I don't know. I mean, we like both Oregon and Washington had better pass defenses than the Utes last season. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, it would have been. I mean, it really like both Georgia and Clemson had better pass defenses than the. I mean, it's like they're, they're just the the talent deficit between what you would have. You know, with what LSU, in particular with scheme, what they were doing, um, it just would have. They they were just a matchup nightmare with, um, and with Burrow particular being able to get through all of his reads as effectively as he did. Um, you know what Utah often would would have attempted to do would not have worked. Uh, I don't think very well in that game. Yeah, that's I mean, really that's. Uh, but I, I, I think part of what we're trying to get across here too to to folks in the Pac-12, and I I think it is useful because I think as fans, you should, we should be putting pressure on our teams to try to get like, so that, you know, that there's not that sort of like satisfaction with getting to the playoff and getting boat raced. Um, you know, you need to get like, we, I, I want the PAC 12 to be in a position where they can go and compete and win a playoff game. Um, you know, Utah, if they would have made the playoff last season, let's say in Oklahoma spot, like, Oak, they, they would have had an Oklahoma like experience playing LSU. Um, the one thing I want to look at though, is the offense. There has been an improvement on offense with Andy Ludwig at the helm. And I mean, like the Utah of three years ago, right? Like even with that awesome defense, if you don't have the offense, like, Oh Lord almighty, that would have been a world of hurt. And it probably would have been a world of hurt this year. Um, but like, how does that offense match up against LSU's defense? Again, an elite defense, but, um, I liked Huntley. I liked the. I liked Zach Moss. I thought that there was some good pieces there. Obviously, throwing to the tight ends, the offensive line, a bit of a mess, a bit of a mess. But Ludwig was trying to do stuff to, you know, make up for that stuff. How would the offensive uh, fared against the LSU defense? I mean, this is actually, it's not a, it's not a super favorable matchup for Utah, but it's somewhat more favorable than you would say like Washington or Oregon would have been because Utah was a was a little more run heavy. Uh, last season and they did have Zach Moss who is a you know a, a very underrated back and would out of the you know the three Pac-12 teams we talked about was easily the best back um, that you know any of those teams had available um, you know Utah they're at 20 in beta rank on offense uh, number 17 in effective rush 51 in effective pass uh, and that 51 number is a little sneaky because everyone really loved 
Huntley when they graded him out on tape. Um, you know, he made smart, like he wasn't, he was not often asked to, to carry the offense, uh, but he made really smart decisions with the ball. And, and that absolutely would help. But the, I think the fact that you you could bang a little bit against this LSU defense uh, and Zach Moss, I think, uh, could have put up some yards. The trouble that you end up with, though, perhaps is um, what happens when you're behind by 21, right? I mean, you got to throw the ball, <laughs> and then you get, and then you're up against that number one ineffective pass, you know, defense uh, for LSU. Mm. What's the next one on the list? Like once we get down to the uh, teams, we'll probably just do the like what the spreads would be and maybe like say a sentence or two about them. But what would be fourth on the list? Hold on, it's, it's probably SC, I would assume, right? It is. That's right. Let's do that. Yeah. So this is a ninety-nine percent win probability and a thirty-two and a half point spread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like SC was better. I mean, for sure last year, and particularly on offense. Um, and this this would have been kind of fun actually, and because you know SC had the number eleven offense in beta rank, uh, you know they're number twelve in drive efficiency, seven in explosive drives, twenty three in negative drives. That's something they really have to clean up coming into next year. Um, they need to come onto the field with better planning and execution, have fewer three and outs, um, you know, and, and turnovers. And then you know the play efficiency at twenty six isn't great either. I mean, huge, huge run pass. Like, what is interesting though when I say this for SC, they're 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 called split, like, and because the effective rush and effective pass are not built off, you know, just what you call. Um, they're called split between run and pass is a lot closer than this. They were just a lot better throwing the ball than they were running the ball. Um, so they were number four in effective rush, number one oh nine. Or I'm sorry, number four in effective pass, number one oh nine in effective rush. Yeah, that was the um, dirty. I mean, not really a dirty secret, but we were kind of pounding our spoon on the table that like USC cannot run the ball. You look at the talent no. and the stars <laughs> behind the offensive line, but they're not doing anything. Uh, so it's a little bit of a strength on strength, right? You have a an elite passing offense against an elite passing defense which kind of neutralizes what usc can do offensively no i mean this would have been, this would have been the really fun matchup to watch because slovis uh you know he was not anywhere near burrow level but you know watching him get through his reads he, he that was one of the main differences i think i mean there was a lot of differences between what the offense was the prior year but Slovis really did get through his reads uh, very effectively, particularly for a true freshman. Uh, you know, they, they would have had an opportunity here because, you know, really alone amongst the Pac-12 teams, they have the talent at wide receiver uh, to, to really go up against, you know, the, the kind. I mean, Derek Stingley, you know, you know, is <laughs> is is easily in the conversation for among the best players in college football. Uh of wide receivers in the Pac-12 that are actually, you know, going to give him fits. Um, you know, some of those guys on on USC, you know, could have at least, you know, made him, you know, miss, miss a tackle here and there. Um, I, I think that with that said, I mean, that number four effective pass versus number one effective pass, it, it would be interesting to see. I mean, it, I, I guess the the hard part with this is like, I mean, it's like that that game against Iowa. Um, Iowa had a, has a very good defense. Uh, and and they really put it to USC with an excellent game plan, um, and and USC really didn't seem to have answers. And that was that was somewhat true, I think, if you looked at USC this season, was they didn't really seem to have a lot of answers, you know, when when what they did got challenged or taken away. That that I think is where you might have seen the struggle. And then obviously, like the yeah, the, the defense, defense would yeah. have been just obliter obliterated by that LSU offense. Clancy Pendergast versus LSU. Woo! Oh man. That would have been just, that would have been so hideous to, I mean, just, I mean, LSU could have put up 70 on that USC well, defense. And, and he tries to blitz all the time, right? So it's like, what are you going to do with Joe Burrow? Idea. Holy Moses. Like, oh, it, that would have been a total disaster. That's a 50 burger waiting to happen. Um, was there any, I mean, there's no, there's no wins. I mean, like everybody comes back to like that, like that Auburn game that kind of slowed LSU down. Like LSU just turned the ball over and shot themselves in the foot in that game. Mm. Right. Like, and then they got – I mean, also we're talking about like if you were going to play any of these Pac-12 teams, like it would have been at the end of the season. Like LSU also shaped into and just an elite team as, you know, the season – I mean, they got they got red hot at the end too. Uh, but they were good all season. Um, and, you know, really like the, the times when they, you know, 
air quotes, struggled. It was usually self-inflicted. And we'll see what USC is able to do with the new defensive coordinator. Like, obviously, Pendergast gone. Good thing. They bring in uh, Todd Orlando from Texas. Whether or not he's able to shape that defense, which, by the way, they've been recruiting gangbusters now, not last year, uh, but the two years and three years before that, particularly on the linebacking front, the linebackers and the safeties and, and the corners have, have been pretty solid in terms of the talent they've been able to bring in. And obviously, they always recruit pretty well um, on the in the trenches. But the, the development of the trenches, particularly on the offensive line, is a problem. And that's one area, if I'm a USC fan, that I really want to see shored up uh, with this new coaching staff, whether or not that they can build up that offensive line, and then, of course, whether or not the defense can get there. But um, Clay Helton, right? We've talked about this a little bit. Just the hires that he's made, he's at least trying to get USC. Now, now it could all just be Clay Helton, but he is yeah. hiring the people around him that – in theory, should be able to bring USC at an up to another level where they're at least challenging for the Pac-12 uh, period. I'm not certain, and I really need to see it if they're ever in a position where they're challenging for a playoff spot. But um, at least, at least on paper, a step forward, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I really like uh, I really like the you know the uh, the hires he's made. I mean, he like he was this close, of course, to having Dave Aranda, you know, yeah. inked, and then Aranda got the head coaching job at Baylor. Uh, but Orlando, I mean, I like, I don't want to come out like I'm, I'm not so like Orlando is a pretty good hire when you are forced to scramble, you know, late in the hiring process uh, to get somebody. He's not I mean, it's he's not great, but given where they were. Uh, but Orlando also like last season, as much as I think people bag on the Texas defense, they had a lot of injuries like it wasn't. I mean, they had, they had some injuries. They had some, you know, returning production, you know, that was pretty low already. Um, it was it would have been a tough year for a lot of people. I think Orlando was not, you know, the kind of great defensive coordinator that gets you up uh, into that range, but really too, I mean, it's, this is the era of big offense in college football. SC nearly just needs to put together a top 10 type defense. They don't need to have like a number one type defense to be able to hang in the college football playoff. If they can put together an offense that can hang with Alabama, you know, LSU, uh, you, you know, Oklahoma, most years, offensively that's really the question i think for a lot of these you know pac-12 teams is can they put together the kind of offense um because that's where the biggest gap is between any of these teams and, and the top teams in college football is there's just a there's a massive gap on offense and we'll see because the passing game's there but the run game was certainly not and the offensive line certainly is not so like if you're putting usc it, like in your mind as an elite offense, like I would pump the brakes on that. I want to see those other two areas short up before I put them in that elite company. It's good. And that passing offense is elite, but the offense as a whole is not quite there. And man, that, <laughs> that Iowa game, um, it, now it was a bowl game and all that stuff. I, I get it. But that was not promising if you're a USC fan and I understand like the defense and, and all this stuff, but um, I don't know. I, I, that, that whole game was kind of frustrating for me. What, <laughs> what did you think about that? Uh, was it the it was the Holiday Bowl, Rob? What did you think about the Holiday Bowl? I mean, it was hideous. From a, like, I mean, it was it, it LS. I mean, not, yeah. I mean, Iowa came in with a far better game plan, and Iowa has a pretty turgid, unwatchable offense. Um, but you know, of course, SC doesn't have the world's greatest defense, and the you know the the Iowa offense was set up with some really great field position. Um, from SC, just unable to really figure out what to do uh, against that Iowa defense, and it was it was a little disappointing because I expected more, I, and I I expected more out of Graham Harrell to be able to to find answers, and I think that's a real learning experience for him uh, to potentially take away from that is you know what to do when you know somebody comes in and takes away what you want to be able to to do and accomplish, and Iowa really did that to SC in a way that uh, you know I, I I it was like I said like it was just a little disappointing, and I think for a young young offensive coordinator, a real learning experience for Harold to have to, you know, know that he has to have something else in his back pocket to be able to go to. Yeah. And to be clear, this was on the defense. Like this is one B and a far down would be like, this was Clancy Pendergrass first and foremost, you give it 49 points to Iowa and uh, somebody needs to be fired and somebody was fired. Um, so defense is the biggest problem, but yeah, uh, in terms of the offense too, it'd been nice to see them uh, at least try to keep stride with what was going on with uh, Iowa, but the defense didn't give them any, um, any reason to be able to keep doing that. So, 
Um, we shall see. So, Rob, let's go through. We have a bunch of other teams in the Pac-12, but I don't want to go through all of them. Those are kind of the top four, unless there's any other team that you want to bring up specifically to talk about um, at length that you think is intriguing. But in my mind, those are kind of those are the top four teams, and, and really there's a drop-off after that. Yeah, I mean, the, the win probability will stay the same at 99% because I don't ever go beyond that. But the, <laughs> the, the spread will just keep getting larger and larger and larger. Uh, I mean, not to like it, there comes a point where, of course, like the spread starts to tail off because Ellis, you know, like most of the game will be garbage time uh, at that point. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and we'll like so. Some after. so, well, let's do it this way. How about we um, give the spread for each team um, after LSU and then let's both give like a sentence or two about what the team needs to do to move up a level in the conference. Right. Like, I don't think any of these other teams are going to be challenging for a playoff soon. But what do they need to do to kind of move up? a bit uh, in terms of how they perform. So for Washington state, which would be the next team in beta rank, they were at 33 in beta rank last season. Uh, it would be a 37 and a half point spread versus LSU. Uh, for me, what Washington state needs to do is they need to clean up the defense. That was the Achilles heel. They were at number 12 on, uh, on, on defense or on offense last season. Um, their defense, however, and, and really has been uh, a major problem for them. Um, they were at number 83 on, on defense last season. So I, I do like Dickert, the new defensive coordinator that they brought in from Wyoming. I think he's going to be a step forward for them. And that's that's where they really have to clean things up to start. I would I took, completely agree with you. The other thing that I would add is my theory for Mike Leach being just awful, awful, awful in bowl games is that he doesn't scheme. He's just like, we're going to do the same five things. And when you have like two weeks or a month to prepare for the air raid and like the five things that Mike Leach does, um, normally you can come up with a pretty good game plan if you got a defensive coordinator worth their salt. So um, now that that changes, obviously he's gone. Um, and but that would that was like the one thing of 2019. Uh, Wazoo where I mean the Apple Cup's a good example where like Washington basically is just saying yeah like we get it <laughs> and we won again so uh, that would have been a problem if he was still there now with the new coach we'll figure out how that offense works um, which which will be really interesting that's a that's a podcast in its own that we're going to do like what is the run and shoot why is it special like what are, what do are Pac-12 teams have to expect when that happens as Rolovich uh, develops his offense there um, okay what's the next one uh, Cal this would be a 40 40- a little over 40 point spread uh, versus the bears. I mean, really Cal last season, I mean, they did take a bit of a step forward on offense. Um, their defense took a step back, you know, finishing at 35. Uh, I, I mean, for me though, the, I mean, what really has to happen for the bears is they have to, they have to, I don't know, figure out how to stop the run up the middle. Uh, and then the offense really has to continue to develop because they were at number 52 on offense last season. I mean, that's just a, that's a bad power five offense still. Yeah. Mine would be recruiting for them. In addition to what you were saying, um, really have not seen a jump uh, under Wilcox and recruiting at Cal. And that's going to be a problem. If you want to compete for the Pac-12 uh, period, you got to get better players in there. And I, I like the defensive staff. Um, I just don't think they're going to have the horses in the next year or two to get back to where they were last year um, or even two years ago in terms of that defense. Uh, the offense, though, um, I like the Musgrave hire, I think. I think well, I, I don't know. <laughs> but a lot of people seem to like it that are really smart football people. So um, with Garbers there, I expect to see the offense take a step forward, but the defense take a step back without Evan Weaver. So, um, all right, who's next? Yeah, I, uh, then we have Oregon State. They finished at 45 in beta rank last season. This would also be a 40, little over a 40-point spread. Uh, this game, like the, the the Beavers' offense was better at number 30 uh, last season uh, and, and really worth watching. They also had an excellent special teams unit at number 5 in beta rank, so sneaky good there. Uh, what the Beavers have to continue to do is develop on defense um, and then, you know, build towards where they can can get on offense. I mean, you're never going to recruit gangbusters in Corvallis, um, but their defense last season was at number 77. Like they need to get into being in the range of, I mean, that's a big improvement, but they need to get into the range of being in the, you know, 40s or 50s. I don't know that at Oregon State, you know, barring a miracle, you're going to be competing with the LSUs of the world that often. No. And like, in the trenches, that's the biggest issue. I actually like some of the front seven guys they have behind, <laughs> you know, like, and we've talked about whether or not Hamilcar Rashid, do we count him as a defensive lineman yeah. or do we count him as a, like, but like him, some of the other linebackers they have are interesting. Um, they do need to really recruit well in the Juco ranks, I think, in order to, to fill the bodies. Um, 
on the defensive line. I actually like Mahalchek, the offensive coordinator they have there. So if he can get those three-star kids and build them up like he has at a number of different places, that's awesome. I actually, like, I'm bullish on the offensive line. It's the defensive line in the secondary where I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, I, I think in order to compete for, like, like a holiday bowl, they need to do those things in order to get up. And I'm with you. I don't think they're ever going to increase recruiting um, significantly higher than where they are now. Maybe, maybe, but like, it's never going to be at a USC level or a Washington level or an Oregon level. Um, all right. Who else we got? Uh, Arizona state. And you can start to see that the the model is starting to project at significant amounts. Of these time games are going to be garbage time because the point spread's not increasing all of that much anymore. Um, so Arizona state would be at 58 in beta rank last season. Uh, they are, they would have been a 41 and a half point underdog against LSU. Uh, their defense was their better unit last year at number 44. We project them to be at 25 in defense coming into this year. I mean, their defense is definitely heading in the right direction. Uh, their offense obviously was not, they did make the move, you know, getting rid of Rob Likens. Um, but Daniels isn't, isn't quite where a lot of people have them <laughs> and their offense stunk last season, number nine, 89 overall, um, you know, and, and really like number one Oh four in effective rush. That offensive line wasn't particularly good. Uh, number 53 in effective pass. They would have really, really struggled offensively against that LSU defense. And they recruited Their recruiting has improved. Uh, you know, they have to, they really have to continue and show that they can develop players and put a better scheme out there on the field than they have. I enjoyed I like the idea um, that they use this past recruiting class, which is get as many freaking offensive linemen in this class as possible because yeah. we need to bulk up. So really good move on that. And now I, I have to go back and look. There wasn't anybody that really jumped off the screen as like, oh, like, hell yeah. Like, that's exactly what they need in order to build up that offensive line. But they did bring in a number of uh, uh, transfers. They had the kid at... Um, uh, over at Oregon, Cody Shear, but more importantly, they have the kid coming out of uh, Stanford that that's going to start there. Uh, but more importantly, also they're bringing in a lot of three, like higher mid three star guys that, that just basically it's a numbers game. And I like that. Like if you're going to really build a program, that's where you need to start. And I, I like that ASU was doing that. Um, mm, we'll, we'll see on the offensive side, you know, Herm plays to win the game. We all know that. And like, we made a lot of money off of that last year, uh, just, just <laughs> taking whatever the points were <laughs> Wait, like and, Her, and, Herm goes turtle. I mean, he goes David Shaw. Well, in, in both ways too. Like, you know, if, if ASU was too much of a favorite, um, obviously we took the dog, but if ASU was, uh, was not a favorite enough, we would take ASU because we knew that he was going to try to keep that game close. So, um, at some point you do need to be able to be a little bit more aggressive to compete at the highest levels of the conference. So let's see if they're able to do that, but I'm kind of, I mean, we've talked about this. Herm's got that program headed in the right direction. Yeah. It's just how yeah. high can he get them? And we're not certain yep. with, about that yet. So uh, next is UCLA number 71 in beta rank. UCLA over they're Stanford. That's crazy. Oh, they're even worse. They stunk last year. Um, number So UCLA is never – they would have been a 43.4 point underdog against LSU. Uh, and really, I mean, like, I don't know that there's a kind – I mean, like, they just need to fire Chip Kelly. Uh, that, <laughs> that was mine too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the offense was at 54 in beta rank last season. I mean, Kelly – I mean, the recruiting has been uh, – So underwhelming. Good. Um, but the defense, I mean, he kept Azanaro inexplicably as the defensive coordinator. I mean, they're at number 87 on defense. I mean, just, uh, there's just not, there's, there's almost nothing other than the, like the only thing that you can actually hang your hat on with this UCLA team was the interior run defense. Like their two, uh, their two tackles were actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, everything else sucked. Totally with you. I don't need to say anything more about UCLA. <laughs> Who's next? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Colorado is next. We were, a little, we were so quick on UCLA because the the, the, the problems are so. <laughs> All right, Colorado would have been a same. I mean, same spread. Colorado was at seventy two last year in beta rank. You know the the trouble that Colorado has. I mean, they they do have some talent deficit uh, issues. Their their defense last season did take a you know a little bit of a step forward at seventy six in beta rank. Um, their, their trouble is, is that they, they really have not gotten the offense going um, at all. I mean, they're at number 67 on offense last year uh, with Jay Johnson as the offensive coordinator, uh, Chiavarini stepping back in. I mean, there's just uh, – it's tough to see because there's not – you don't know really who the quarterback's going to be. Uh, 
yeah. And, and, you know, we have our concerns about Chiaverini there. Um, and, you know, really Carl Durrell was like the rabbit out of a hat. Uh, and I realized they were at a really tough spot, uh, there, but, you know, Mel Tucker did have some things going in bringing in transfers and, and they did have a little buzz on the recruiting trail. They really needed that. I mean, they, they needed to land, I mean, they, they, they really needed to land some good players because I, I don't know that Johnson was ever going to get the offense at a great spot. They could have been in a spot where they could be interesting to compete if where, with where, Tucker maybe could have got that defense. So here's a question for you. Would it have been better to, if Carl Durrell is your ultimate landing spot, would it have been better to take that money, um, offer Chiaverini the interim head coach, and then just fire him the next year and get a, and get a coach from a smaller program that's going to bring their staff with them, right? Because that was the issue. We've seen this at a couple of other programs. You get you get a coach that that hasn't been coaching or doesn't have their own staff, and they got to kind of put together like you mean the island of misfit toys for for their staff. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with uh, with Carl Durrell. Now they did get some interesting people there. Um, yeah, but at the same time, like, do you think Durrell's going to take them to seven and six every year? Like, I don't even think he's going to do that. I, I just have no faith in Durrell being the guy that is going to take um, Colorado to the other, you know, to the next level. And in the next level, it's all relative, right? Next level for me is like, you know, consistent, decent bowl game, you know, every, like two, two of every three years. Um, would you rather have them just bit the bullet and bottomed out and then really gone in, all in on a coach? Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that the opportunity. I mean, it is tough because that you know, if you if you go with an interim coach for that long, it can really torpedo your recruiting, and I think that there were concerns about that. I think the smart play is to then. But Chiverino you know, was their recruit. Like that was the one thing, right? Is yeah, the the players liked him. He seems to be driving some of the the play, particularly on the wide receiving front for them. Um, yeah. Anyway, that would be the one argument. Like. But I don't know why you wouldn't go out and offer Chiaverini, like, don't give him an interim, but just, you know, structure it, you know, structure it so that he's got a very manageable buyout, right? Because you're already getting a bunch of money paid to you by Michigan State anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I do think I do think that that like the the, the 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 trouble here for Colorado really is that they they find themselves in a place where. They have, and and this is true. I mean, really, I think this is true for another team on our list that ended up with that late Richrod firing with an island of misfit toys on their coaching staff. <laughs> um, that kind of stuff can set you back for years, right? Like if you end up scrambling around trying to put together a staff, like ending up on like your, you know, whatever, what what any any normal, you know, search for Colorado would have been you know, a name, like not even on the, you know, first page of, you know, first page of results that you're looking at, um, probably not even on the fifth page of results that you're looking at, uh, you know, like that kind of thing can, can really have long-term effects. And, you know, you're, unless you, Colorado may not have the money now, I mean, particularly then you add on COVID to that, like they may not have the money to buy out the Yeah. Yeah. He might be there for four years. I mean, like I mean, this could, it's hindsight, right? But if, if there's one year to just put a slap an interim tag or, or a full-time coach, but like make the buyout $25,000. I mean, like not really, you know what I mean? Like, you know, just give like a yeah. minimal buyout, man, boy, howdy, this would have been the year to do it. But I know. Oh man. I don't know. Like, yeah. And I, like, I think you're referencing Arizona on whether or not like they could have slapped a, the same thing with Marcel Yates instead of getting someone, but someone at least had some semblance of, um, of success now has it hasn't happened at Arizona and like, it's looking like it is a bad hire, but I think there was more on paper that looked good about Sumlin, the recruiting. Um, he had shown that he could really put together a prolific, prolific offense at Houston. Um, and, uh, and just the ties, he had ties in all the areas that Arizona wanted to be. Um, whereas yeah. Darrell was in Miami coaching and kind of all over the place and didn't have the college football connections that Sumlin had, uh, he might do better than someone though. Like, I mean, the, the bar is so low I mean, with someone. Someone, I mean, so like we can get into this. I mean, I think if you're Kevin, someone right now, you're looking at almost nothing but upside versus where you've been. Um, and there's some reasons for that. I mean, like, it, but we should, we should get into those right after Stanford. It was also, I mean, we've really hit the point actually where we're like the, like LSU's not, like, we don't expect there are only so many 
you know, minutes in a college football game to score points over crappy teams. Uh, and it's everybody on out. It's going to be at that 43.4. <laughs> so the, you know, but Stanford finished at 75 in beta rank last season. Their offense was at 65. I mean, they just really stunk with, I mean, it really stands out. I mean, if you hear anyone talk about how Stanford loves to run the football, they were at 115 in effective rush last year. Uh, decent and effective pass number 25 uh, there, but I would not have wanted to be uh, any of the Stanford quarterbacks getting rushed by LSU, uh, you know, having to play from behind. Their defense was very bad last season, number 81 overall uh, in beta rank. LSU would have just waltzed all over those guys um, and probably would have cut Paulson Adebo's draft stock significantly. <laughs> I think that I they... mean, Stanford, like, what do you think? I mean, what do you think they can do to get? Because the recruiting is still good enough that they should be better. I think the recruit. Well, I think it's two things, right? It's cleaning house. Like you just I mean, to to breathe some more life back into the program. Like keep the you know, keep uh, Dwayne Aquina at the secondary. Maybe keep like one other or two other coaches that have proven to be successful, and just clean house on the coordinators and breathe a younger life into the program. I think people will still want to play for David Shaw. Um, I I like him personally. He has a track record of success, and Stanford is Stanford. It's well, it's the most beautiful call uh, campus in the Pac-12. It is the highest pedigree in terms of like a university. It's right near Palo Alto. Like, there's so many things going for it. You bring in a staff that's highly successful and motivated, and they don't even have to be younger. They just have to have that umph to them. I think that's what what does it, and I think that raises the level of your recruiting again. But I, I would push back a little on the recruiting. It's been fine, but it certainly hasn't been at the level that we've um, been surprised about with David Shaw. There's a couple of years where, like, I kind of wrote them off, like, well, Harbaugh's gone or, or they had a bad year. And he's pulled a couple of rabbits out of his hat, particularly on the offensive line. Um, and that has not been the case the last couple of years, which is really worrisome if you're a Stanford fan. Yeah, I mean, the, recruit, I mean, uh, the recruiting isn't where, you know, like they're in the top you know, 10 or anything like that, but you certainly shouldn't be finishing this badly in college football with the way they've recruited. Yeah. You shouldn't be in the seventies in beta rank. I mean, like as one of the worst power five teams out there, um, with the way Stan, I mean, Stanford's recruiting relative to how they performed last season is a bit of an aberration and a real indictment of that coaching staff. Oh, totally agree. Um, let's see if they finally do that next year. But I mean, this is the problem, right? Like in COVID, um, kind of exposes a lot of things. Like if you're just kind of sitting pretty and don't make the changes and look forward, then, you know, when disaster strikes, you're kind of stuck with what you have. Right. And like Stanford's yeah. stuck with what they have for another two years, likely. And uh, well, we've talked about this. I mean, since, the, you know, since their defensive old defensive line coach retired, um, Lance Anderson really hasn't been all that effective as a defensive coordinator. Mike Bloomgren, who is their offensive coordinator, is you know, now the head coach at Rice. He was also their offensive line coach. Pritchard's been okay. They've certainly shifted to to what the you know offense really is able to do. But I mean, they seem to whoever their offensive line coach is now is not doesn't seem to be particularly good at coaching how to run block. No, and I think he's still there, and that's a problem. Yeah, um, so. yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're a Stanford fan, just chalking it all up to injuries, like you should not, right? I mean, this is you know you don't end up where they ended up just with injuries. Yeah. Well, let's stop crapping on Stanford here. We, uh, yeah. I think it's just Arizona. So right? last but not least, it's Arizona. Um, they were at number 80 in beta rank last season. The, you know, the real standout poor grade comes in at, at number 85 on defense. I mean, we talked about, you know, the island of misfit toys. Um, you know, the, that Arizona defensive staff that someone put together uh, just incredibly bad. Um no, I mean, like, because he kept Yates, which was, I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I do want to, like, I don't want to just crap all over some, like, because I actually think, like, if you get hired that late in the cycle, it's hard to put a staff together. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you, unless you can, like, unless you have, like, Mel Tucker had just buckets of money from Michigan State to go out and hire Scotty Hazleton from Kansas State. Like, you don't, Kevin Sumlin was not given buckets of money to go out late in the hiring cycle, but he got the weird, I mean, like, the junior college defensive line coach um you know <laughs> you know the uh you know the marcel yates buddy john rushing to coach linebackers who had no I, I don't know if that he'd ever even coached as an on-field coach above the fcs level 
um, you know, keeping Yates himself on, which made the players. I mean, that that defensive staff, I think, in particular, was bad. But then you saddle it like the offense was at 59 last season in beta rank. You know, there's just there could not have been like I, I think this is almost always true is like when you saw um, at Michigan, too, when they tried to adjust a little bit um, or when you've seen any of Rich Rod court, you know, you know, Rich Rod type quarterbacks go on to the NFL, um, you know, that 59 on, on offense, like Khalil Tate was just a terrible matchup for a modern spread offense outside of Rich Rod's offense. Um, you know, and, and we can, you've, you've seen it like Khalil Tate holding the ball, not getting through his reads was deeply problematic and held the offense back. Um, Gunnell, a lot of people are really high on Gunnell. I, you know, I try to, I try to like check it a little bit. They're like, all right, I, I am very high on Gunnell. I think he can help turn around the offense. I think Mazzoni has a solid scheme. I think that their wide receivers could be a bit of a limitation, you know, coming into this year. The offensive line's not great, but they're not bad. Um, and they bring a lot back. But I think the main thing is just Yates is gone and Tate is gone. Um, and those two things, I mean, and having a really, if you look at Arizona's defensive staff now, it's a bunch of really professional, like, I mean, Andy Buh is the linebackers coach, right? Like there's a, there's a lot of guys on there that have a lot of experience coaching at the power five level, um, versus what they had before. And I don't, I, I'm not expecting that Paul Rhodes is going to turn out some, amazing you know like defense like that he used to grade like where he used to grade out with that pit defense that he had but i do expect them to be far better than they were under yates and at least you know like not having fist fights on the sidelines between the defensive staff i mean that, i mean like just basic level stuff i actually expect them to start to get more of that right but that, i mean it really does come down and and you know we can speak to this we watch a lot of arizona football you know, the defensive line just hasn't been good and they have to recruit better and develop talent better there. I would say also like Rich Rod left the cupboard far more bare than people realize as far as talent goes on the team. Um, Arizona is not going to go out. I don't think that, I don't think you're going to grade. Like I wouldn't expect someone to grade out recruiting a lot better than Rich Rod did. Rich Rod just didn't identify players or develop them. Um, you're going to have to recruit in that same range, but actually be able to identify the players and develop them better than to, to succeed at Arizona. You're, you're not going to go out and sign, you know, a top 10 class. Yeah. So. Well, Hey, let, let's leave this portion here. And, um, it's a little depressing, a little depressing, but like, I do think that the topper, the upper echelon, like the, the grain of salt here is the upper echelon teams in the PAC 12 for the, the, for the most part are making the moves that they need to to raise the level yeah. of their program, which is great. And that's what we want to see on this on this podcast, podcast obviously talking about the Pac-12. Um, and if you're a, a fan of one of those four teams, that's amazing. Like, you know, it's really good. It's not the head in the sand stuff. Like, think of just a crap on Stanford a little bit longer, you know. They're, like, those issues, or in UCLA, the issues that needed to be changed – haven't been changed for like two or three years. Whereas the the teams that are on the upward trajectory are making the change. Even ASU, you know, firing their offensive coordinator, probably a good thing to do. Moving on and like now, I know their defensive coordinator moved on and stuff, but um, I, I just think that they're they're kind of looking at the areas of improvement and they're making those. So um, kudos to those teams. Uh, Rob, let's do the previews on another podcast soon 